1: My view says that it's God's own nature that makes it the case that God can't prevent evil single-handedly. That God's nature is first and foremost loving and God necessarily loves everyone all the time. And that involves giving or empowering others, not only free will creatures, but cells and muscles and amoeba and corks and the whole kit and caboodle. And because God loves everyone and everything, God can't control anyone or anything because to do so would be to go against God's own nature of love.
2: my gosh i i i can't tell who's more excited right now hi everybody hey welcome
3: to the deconstructionist podcast we're back we're back 2019 um forgive us we are alive actually we don't need to ask for your forgiveness we know you understand yeah life is kicking us in the
2: face right now i think a couple of you may have filed a police report though (laughs) for missing persons (laughs) and i we appreciate that um, we're still doing this. We are alive. We, we are still know. doing this. <laughs> there
3: is more deconstructing and reconstructing to be done. Yeah. There are more conversations to be had. We are not forsaking the brethren and the sisterhood <laughs> of the deconstructionists. Yeah. We've just been, uh, we've just been taking a beating by life and that sometimes happens. It just happens. And we know you understand, but, Seasons. um, we're lining up the interviews. We are. the First one is now you're going to love it. And we've got some really tasty treats coming for yeah. you guys. Just so you know, it's going to be worth the wait. We may not put out as many episodes this year, (laughs) but we know that you're going to stick with us and love us through it. So keep sending us suggestions. And uh, uh, we've just been getting tons and tons of emails, honestly, probably more since we took a break with just people that have been impacted by this, sharing this still, as if we just started and people are, you know, it's, uh, there's still just a lot of life here and
2: it's really, really great. So thank you guys. Yeah. We had like 80 something episodes in the can. So I know some of you needed to play catch up and then, yeah. You know. so think of it as your opportunity to catch up to all the, the good stuff that, you know,
3: it's already he, out there. <laughs> you know, John and I, uh, we're limited. We're we, limited. We're limited we, individuals. There's some things we just can't do. And speaking of what we, people can't do. Yeah. You know, God can't do some stuff. What? He can't. Uh-oh. It can't, she can't, whatever. <laughs> that's right. Uh, God can't. And uh, we need to get this going here because we had Tom Ord or Thomas freaking J freaking Ord. Another three name individual. I know, you just can't do the freaking with three names. That's true. It's forcing it.
2: We've learned that. We learned that two, two, three years ago.
3: Yeah, we did. We're heading into year four now. Yeah. Glennon Doyle Melton, I think we realized, and now it's back to Glennon Doyle. So we could just redub that in, but that's true. Yeah. But, um, Thomas Ord, you guys are just going to love this. This has got something for everybody. Um, for people that are kind of going through something and God is a really sensitive subject, uh, you're going to take a lot away from this, with a new perspective on how to to view God in the midst of pain and suffering and tragedy. Um, for those of you that are a little bit nerdier and you like a philosophical approach to theology or just a new thing to consider, um, plenty of food for thought here, and it's really accessible. I mean, he's really good at just talking um, really just on the level where everybody can engage and understand and get something out of. So this is a really fun interview. And
2: one of the things I love about this, we've had a a few books over the years um, that are kind of formatted like this, but um, one of the cool things he does is at the end of each chapter, he has kind of study questions. So for those of you out there that are are, um, using some of the books by some of the authors that we've had on, um, you know, in like small groups or or just with your friends to, to kind of discuss interesting topics, it's got some really cool questions, Um, at the end of each chapter that kind of uh, serve as the basis of of good discussion um, that that I think are really cool. But, yeah, it's a really easy read. Um, It's not a super long book, um, but for a guy who's a brilliant academic, he really breaks it down um, into, you know, Uh, something that that anybody can understand so great book and those of you who um are members of our book club might be seeing this one soon or may have already seen it i don't thank you you know to all the people on patreon that just stuck it out
3: and believed that we were doing our best yeah to bring you what you're supporting us for we are still here (laughs) we're doing things uh we got some trips coming up to try to grab some live interviews and so you know some stuff like that so it's going to be a lot of fun and uh speaking of which that's a good thing to mention, Adam. Yes. Where are we going to be this very month? We are going to be in the UK. We're, we're coming across the pond. Holy cow! It's the American invasion,
2: and, and people are like, "Oh, you guys are you guys are coming over here for work?" Nay, nay, nay! I say we are. We are going there because Adam and I very much need a vacation break. <laughs> so. But, um, having and this said is, that, this is your bucket list thing, man. Oh my and gosh. You've got a, you've got a special birthday coming up this year. I, I do. And nobody believes me when I tell them <laughs> it's cause you got a baby face. I do. You I'm got a baby face. I'm turning, I'm turning 40 this year. And so, uh, one of the things that I always promised myself that I would do before I turned 40 was I said, I would go back to the motherland and my grandfather was born in Scotland. And so we are going over to, uh, to Scotland for, um, for part of a week. And then we're going to be in London for a little bit. Um, so we will uh, we'll definitely, uh, if any of you are from either of those two fine countries, um, we'll probably have a night where we're at a pub somewhere that will... It'd be super fun to meet anybody over yeah. there.
3: Um, if you're in the UK and you listen to this show and you would like to hang with me and John, send us a message on Twitter or email or something and let's make something happen. We'd love to meet some brothers and sisters
2: yeah, from the United Kingdom. Yeah, I, just, I, just, I think we should go stalk the Nomad. we totally should (laughs) i know we we love uh, for those of you who have been with us for a while uh know that we we both are big fans of the nomad podcast over there so love it yeah
3: they're the ogs they are they've been doing it forever and
2: they're so so consistently good um if you guys haven't heard it um they just have an insane guest list over the past like i don't know like eight ten years they just do it they really are nomads they are
3: yeah (laughs) they're nomadic (laughs) um anyway Anyway. so this is gonna be a lot of fun we got thomas j ord coming at you and uh, thanks for hanging in there and waiting for some more content. We love you guys. And yeah. Without further ado, we bring you Thomas Thomas J. Ward.
4: Climb something high, don't look down, and don't look back. Yeah,
3: here with Thomas J. Ord, coming to us all the way from Idaho. First person I've ever spoken to from Idaho. So this is, this is a milestone for me. Thomas, Tom, we're going to call you Tom. Thank you so much for being on the show and talking about all the things that God can't do
2: today. This is going to be a lot of fun.
1: Sounds good. I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation.
2: Well, before before we get started, um, you've got this great book out that we're, we're going to spend most of our time on called God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse and Other Evils. Uh, but Before we get into that, um, if you could just tell the, the listeners a little bit about you, your background, and, and how you came to do the work that you do today.
1: Sure. I was fortunate to grow up in a family which my parents were uh, pretty good examples of living a life of love. I went to church an awful lot. Um, by the time I was in high school and into college, I was considered myself a committed Christian. In fact, I was uh, very evangelistic. I felt like the Bible called me to share the good news of Jesus, and so I spent a lot of time door-to-door witnessing. I joined Campus Crusade for Christ. I memorized scripture. I did all the things I thought I should do to, to have this, you know, sure and certain account of who God was and why God had all the answers. And then uh, when I was in college, um, I encountered a class on philosophy of religion. And for the first time in my life, I encountered arguments and ideas from agnostics, atheists, those from other religious traditions that were really um, challenging. Um, you know, most of the time when I engaged people in witnessing, I had done more studying and I was prepared and I could out argue them. Mm-hmm. But these people were super smart and the kinds of arguments they met, they made, Uh, placed into doubt the basis for my belief in God. And so, for the sake of intellectual honesty, I became an atheist. I will never forget picking up my fiancée, who's now my wife, her getting into the car and me turning to her and saying, I just can't believe in God anymore. (laughs) Both of us were uh, preparing for ministry. We were both religion majors. And here I was no longer believing in the source of, you know, our religion, our faith. Wow. I, uh, yeah, I was a atheist for not a, a really long period of time, in part because I didn't give up the quest to try to make sense of things. Uh, you know, I wasn't an atheist because I was, you know, mad at the church or uh, anything like that. I was an atheist for, on intellectual grounds, and I kept that thinking and studying and I eventually came to think it was more plausible than not not certain but plausible that there was a God, and two issues were kind of um at the very heart of my return to belief in God. one was that I couldn't find ultimate meaning if there was no ultimate ground for meaning. I wanted my life to have meaning and I thought things ought to be meaningful, but it didn't seem to make much sense if there wasn't an ultimate source of meaning. And the second one was that I had these deep intuitions about love, that I ought to be a loving person, that other people ought to be loving and I couldn't make good sense of those if there wasn't a source for love. Uh, and so those two things were kind of the not kind of they were the the source of my return to faith in God. But it was a very thin kind of faith. You know, I I believed there was a God. I wasn't sure. I'm still not sure. Uh, I thought Jesus was pretty cool, and that was about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> But over the years, I have developed and deepened and widened some of my views. Um, and so today, I still wouldn't say I'm sure there's a God, but I do. I am committed to living a life of love, believe that God is a God of love. I try to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I try to think carefully about a whole a, a wide array of issues related to um, the world, love and God.
2: Wow. So I, I think the place we have to start, obviously, because I, as I as I kind of teased earlier, we're going to spend most of our time talking about your your recent book, God Can't. And obviously, uh, as you even mentioned in the book, um, it's a pretty provocative title because I'm sure there are a lot of people that are out there saying, what do, "What do you mean, God can't? God God can do everything," you know. So I think the place, the, the logical place to start is, is what do you mean by by God can't in in relation to what you call a God of uncontrolling love.
1: Yeah, sure. So my title is not a gimmick. I actually believe God simply can't do some things. And as you mentioned, it's provocative to a lot of people, at least a lot of Christians, because they've never really heard this idea, even though uh, the Bible in various places explicitly says God can't do some things. For instance, uh, the writer of Hebrews says God cannot tell a lie. And so does Titus, actually. Uh, James says God can't be tempted. The psalmist says God can't grow tired. Uh, The passage I, I like the best, though, is when Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, When you are faithless, God remains faithful because God cannot deny himself. And so the kind of the crux to the claim there are things God can't do revolve around the idea that God must be God and God can't be other than God. So then the question is, okay, well, then who is God? What God, what is God like? What, what are God's attributes? And the claim that I have in this book is that love is the center of who God is. God must love because mm. that's God's heart, we might say. Mm. And furthermore, this love is self-giving, others empowering, and therefore inherently uncontrolling. So, to work into the questions of evil and suffering and unnecessary pain, etc., to begin with the notion that God is a God of love who can't control anyone or anything,
4: Hmm.
3: Man. So there's so much uh, going on here that I, I know that so many people that have been raised in the sort of traditional Christian environment, you know, the first thing you're going to say is they're going to say, Tom, I was taught that God is omnipotent. I, <laughs> I even know how to say that big word and it's got to mean something. So, you know, potency, power is something that we 're extremely obsessed with in the West, just as much as we are in um, rationality and uh, our our power again to explain things um, and these things go hand in hand when you 're a good Christian, especially uh, if you 're uh, you know, a Nazarene in, in Idaho, so I know you 've <laughs> come, come, uh, come up against some of this stuff right here so if I, if, if my twenty two year old self was was in on this call tom he 'd be going, "Whoa whoa whoa, hang on a second we 're not talking about the same God then because my God is omnipotent
1: yeah I mean that 's I think a very common reaction. Let me begin my response by saying i don 't believe god 's a wimp." <laughs> I I don't also believe that God is sitting on the sidelines uninvolved you know mm. uh, sort of out on vacation on holiday or something. Mm. So this is a God, uh, the God I believe is active everywhere all the time at every level of existence, complex from the most complex to the least complex in Idaho, around the world, on every planet and every galaxy in the entire universe. Mm. This God is active everywhere. However... I think this God is inherently uncontrolling. Hmm. The word I actually like to use most is a word that most English uh, translators of the Bible use. I like to say God is almighty. Hmm. And by that I mean God is almighty in at least three senses God is mightier than all others, almighty. God exerts might upon all others, almighty. And God is the source of might for all others. Hmm. God can be almighty in those three senses and yet be unable to control anyone or anything. So I've got an almighty God, but God's power is always expressed through uncontrolling love.
3: And why is that so important that love be uncontrolling? I think that'd be a good thing to just kind of start teasing out right now because I think that's, um, some of the, you know, the, the beautiful parts of your book is just taking that intuition where people know that, you know, love in its, in its best sense is something that provides freedom and something that provides opportunity and, um, you know, uh, it's not something that's restraining and controlling. Um, I think we know that that's, that's actually abusive and, uh, maybe we wouldn't even call that kidnapping sometimes. <laughs> you know, that's,
1: yeah. That's yeah. Not, you know, I do think you're right that most people have an intuition that love, you know, gives freedom or doesn't interrupt freedom or something like that. Um, but when the rubber hits the road in terms of evil in the world, the questions begin to emerge. So Mm -hmm. let's take a real life situation uh, that a a woman who had read a former book of mine wrote a letter to me, and I included a portion of her letter in this new book, God Can't. She was a woman who was sexually abused by uh, family members, boyfriends, and a stranger. And she was asking her the question, if God really loves me, Why doesn't God prevent this abuse? Hmm. Yeah, God gives free will. God gives me freedom. God gives my abusers freedom. But if God has the power to take away their freedom or fail to give their freedom, then why wouldn't God do that to protect me, to rescue me? If God can take away or override freedom, then God ought to do so in the name of love to prevent the horrific evils of the world, including sexual abuse. Mm. My particular view says God simply can't take away their freedom. Mm. That God is giving freedom to complex creatures and agency to less complex creatures and mere existence to the smallest entities of reality. And God necessarily does this because that's God's very nature.
2: So one of the important things I, I think you talk about early on in the book, because obviously the, the the basis of this book is is speaking about you know why why does evil occur and and God not step in and, and stop it, but you you talk about the the nature of evil and you kind of you make a distinction between evil and what you call genuine evil. Can you explain kind of what you what, what you mean by that? Hmm.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think we all realize that sometimes we should choose to do go through some pain because we know that there's something better that comes as a result. You know, when my wife and I decide we're going to have children, we know that it's going to be painful for her in the delivery room, and there's likely going to be painful moments as we raise our kids. But we go through that believing that, you know, there's going to be a lot of joy and it's going to be better. It's better to have children, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I want to make a distinction between that kind of pain that's not genuinely evil and those events that make the world, all things considered, worse than it might have been. That's kind of a philosophical way of saying some things are just not for the good. They don't promote overall well being, we might say. And when we start thinking about those, you know, at least for me, some examples jump quickly to mind torturing children. I think that's genuinely evil. Rape, genuinely evil. Genocide. Now, there are some acts that we're going to have debates on. You know, right now it's super cold in Ohio and it's nice It's (laughs) 52 degrees in Idaho. And some people in Ohio love the cold weather and they love it and they think it's great you guys don't like it, maybe you'd call it evil. I don't know. It
3: is evil. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) It is genuinely evil.
1: (laughs) Serves no point. (laughs) So So we might have some disagreements on what things are evil, but I want to make the argument, and I don't do it as explicitly in this book as I have in some more academic books, but I make the argument that every last person alive Thinks that some events make the world worse than they might have been. We may disagree on whether or not on the weather, but every single one of us act as if some things didn't have to be, but people chose them or some accident happened, whatever, and they made the world worse than it might have been. And, And those of us who are in the Christian tradition who believe in sin, have sort of it built into our very you know, understanding of reality that we sometimes choose other than the best to which God calls us. And so that obviously must make the world worse than it might have been. So there's a difference between apparent evil and genuine evil. Genuine evils are those things that make the world worse than they might have been. And every single one of us presupposes that those things occur, even though sometimes people will say they don't. Hmm.
2: So one of the things I thought was really interesting is you bring up a, a popular book uh, among Christian circles uh, in, in your book, uh, The Shack. The Shack. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and you said, you know, as a whole, like, you know, good book, but you, you uh, had a slight issue with one of the uh, portions of the premise of the book, and it's this idea um, that the human uh, human beings can't fully understand good and evil. Uh, what What did you mean by that? Hmm.
1: Well, you know it, it, it's not just the shack, but um, a lot of people, when they wrestle with these issues of the problem of evil, they'll give, you know, some sort of answer that makes pretty good sense until they get kind of backed into a corner and they don't have a good answer. And then they'll reach into their back pocket and pull out this big honking mystery card and put it right in the middle of the conversation. And they'll say, well, you know, God's ways are not our ways. And in the shack, I think Paul, Paul Young does a good job most often. But when he has his characters ask the questions, you know, why didn't God prevent this evil in the first place? Why didn't God prevent Missy's death in that particular story? Uh, Paul Young doesn't have any of the characters give a kind of response that I want to give, which is that God simply can't do that. He doesn't want to take that extra step. And what he does is say, have the characters say, well, you know, who are you to try to understand God? Uh, Maybe there's, you know, a way that this somehow makes sense. And what I don't like about that, well, a lot of things I don't like about it. But one of the things is that throughout the book, Paul is trying to say we have a loving God, and I'm totally on board with that. Mm -hmm. But then when the going gets tough and the question is asked, why didn't God prevent this evil? Then he pulls out that mystery card that says, you know, God's ways are not our ways. We have finite minds. Who are we to ask the questions about this? And I think that's cheating. I think that is the wrong way to go. So while I don't want to claim that I have God all figured out, I think pulling out the mystery card and putting it right in the center of the questions is, um, not legit. Mm.
3: Man, that's, that's really, really interesting. You know, one of the things that, you know, being a a podcast named, you know, the deconstructionists mystery is something that comes up on this podcast a lot, but you know, not necessarily as a trump card. I think that, uh, one of the things that I started to realize is somebody who's a repenting rationalist, you know somebody <laughs> somebody somebody that thought that they could have an answer you know eventually to everything and probably pulled out the mystery trump card every now and again is um, mystery for me has become more of a premise than a than a trump card in a lot mm. of senses that uh I enjoy the conversation I enjoy putting words to these things but the but the mystery never goes away it 's always a part of it. And I, I never really get the impression that I'm going to be able to neatly package any of this and that uh, maybe don't need to, but that doesn't halt the conversation. It, uh, in some ways it opens it up more, you know, there's always going to be, you know, more questions. And I think the the desperate need that we all have to be able to understand all of this and, and live without uncertainty is just, uh, is just problematic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I guess I like to make a distinction between mystery in the sense of whether or not we can be certain our views are correct Mm. and, and mystery in the sense of pulling out the card when the logic goes against our way of thinking. Oh, that's brilliant. Yes. Great distinction. Yeah. Maybe how about if I throw an illustration out at you guys? Let's, let's suppose, um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a big time backpacker. And let's suppose I'm backpacking in Idaho and I come upon a, uh, a bottle and it has a little note in it. And I get the note out of the bottle and it's a message that someone has written from Nairobi, Kenya. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world did this bottle get all the way to Idaho? And I come back and uh, I get some friends together and I say, you know, this is amazing. I found this thing. I wonder how it got there. And they say, I tell you what, let's do as an experiment. Let's come up with, you know, there's four of us. What we think is the four best explanations possible for how this bottle got from Nairobi, Kenya to the back country of Idaho. And so they go off and spend a week thinking about it, and they come back together, and they, they give their options. One person says, well, you know, the bottle left Nairobi and went to the western sea of Africa, and then it ended up coming on the eastern seaboard of the U.S., and somebody had it in the back of their car, and they threw it out when they were backpacking in Idaho. And someone else says, well, you know, it left Nairobi, it went up through Europe, It uh, got up to London, and then it ended up coming through Alaska. And someone else, you know, gives another uh, explanation. But let's suppose that of these four explanations, only one of them gives any kind of possible explanation of how the, the bottle got across the ocean. All the rest of them leave out this essential question of how the bottle gets across the sea from one continent to another. They all got explanations of how it got from Nairobi to the coast of Africa and how it got from the coast of the U.S. to Idaho, but none of them, except one, give us any kind of possibility of how it got across the oceans. Now, in my view, that question of how it got across the ocean is a big mystery in three of the four possibilities. Now, the one that gives us an explanation, we don't know for sure if that's the right explanation, but at least it gives us some sort of explanation of how it got across the ocean. And I think that one is going to be more plausible than the other three because it doesn't put a big mystery right in the middle of the model. I'm proposing here a model of how we might think about God that doesn't put a big mystery right in the middle of it like so many other models do. Mm. Well, yeah that's
2: good let, yeah let's keep, let's keep following that train of thought there because one of the ideas cool. you give in the book is that God feels your pain and that God is as you said before not aloof or you know what we might call uh, you know the, the clockmaker version of God where God ceases to take an active role uh, in, in creation but you say God is present in pain and suffering and mm-hmm. God experiences empathy uh, but you make the distinction between empathy and pity explain that a little bit.
1: Well, you know, it's somewhat arbitrary, but I, I tend to think of the word as pity as uh, someone who looks at a bad situation and says, "Sucks to be you," you know, sort of hasn't doesn't have any sort of feeling of what it must be like to be in the rotten situation, but just observes from a distance. And I think God is not only present to us when we suffer but God is actually affected by suffering. In other words, God feels our pain. It may not be exactly like we feel it, but since God is omnipresent and, in my view, relational, God suffers with us when we go through pain.
4: Oh, because when I think I'm doing pretty good There's always something else Oh, because every time I think that I have learned I
3: think I think one thing before we get too much further into this, I'm thinking that you know for anybody listening to this, they're going to be super curious for us to continue to dive a little bit further into what you mean when you say God can't prevent some evil, all evil. What you know, how, however, you kind of break it down in the book, you get into that a little bit. Um, I think right now it'd be good to kind of give them a little bit more. As, to, as far as what you mean when we're talking about God, you know, the supreme being, like you said, almighty, but the fact that he can't and the distinction that we are starting to get to a little bit with the fact that, you know, power may, may not be the preeminent thing in God's character, but love is. Could we Let's talk about that a little bit. What, what do you mean when you say God's, God can't and, and what does that have to do with love?
1: Yeah, so um maybe a way to clarify what I mean by saying that love shapes God's power or love constrains God's power or we ought to understand God's power in the light of love is to contrast my view with one that I might say is to the right of me and one is to the left of me. Yeah i yeah, be good. <laughs> I'm not sure. So on one side are people who say, well, God is loving, uh, but God voluntarily chooses not to stop evil. So God could, but because maybe God values free will or because God thinks we need to learn a lesson or whatever, God voluntarily restrains from stopping something that God could stop. Hmm. Um, This view has big problems, I think, because it means that there's no such thing as genuine evil to God. It means that every rape, every torture, every genocide is something that God could have stopped but decided not to. Maybe, you know, because maybe God wanted to respect our free will. Let me give an example of why I think this doesn't work. Suppose uh, I'm in my backyard here in Idaho, and I've actually got a little creek in my backyard. Suppose my oldest daughter and my youngest daughter are playing in the creek. And my oldest daughter puts my youngest daughter's head under the water because she's mad at her and starts to drown her. And suppose I see this happening and I'm close enough that I could run out there and intervene and stop this. But I say to myself, you know, love requires that I allow people to use their free will. So I'm just going to stand back and let my oldest daughter kill my youngest daughter. Now, nobody in my neighborhood would vote me father of the year if they knew that I did that, right? <laughs> no. Because they would they would say, if I have the power to go out there and rescue my youngest daughter, I ought to do that. But the people in this voluntary free will view that God voluntarily decides not to intervene, they have the problem of saying that God could have stopped all the crap that happens in our life, the real genuine evil in the world, but God decided not to. And I think that undermines the idea that God's love is perfect, steadfast, unconditional, etc. Now, on the other side of my position is the idea that God is somehow constrained by external forces or powers or the devil or something like that. And this is kind of the idea that God's hands are tied behind God's back. And God's saying, oh, man, I'd really like to help out here. But this thing or these principalities and powers or these metaphysical laws or Satan or whatever, they're preventing me. Mm -hmm. I'm against that view. My view says that it's God's own nature that makes it the case that God can't prevent evil single handedly that God's nature is first and foremost loving, and God necessarily loves everyone all the time. And that involves giving or empowering others, not only free will creatures, but cells and muscles and amoeba and corks and the whole kit and caboodle. And because God loves everyone and everything, God can't control anyone or anything because to do so, would be to go against God's own nature of love. Man,
2: so one of the things that you bring up in the book that I thought was really interesting that I would love for you to to explain is you talk about um, the idea of the golden rule, which I think everybody is familiar with, but you also talk about this thing called the crimson rule. What is the crimson rule?
1: <laughs> the Crimson Rule is my little uh, phrase for talking about how we, how we ought to empathize with others like God empathizes with others. And so um, part of love, I think, is receiving. It's being affected by others and trying to uh, empathize with wherever they're at. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think Jesus is our best example of what this empathy is like. And, uh, in the book, I, I used the story of the good Samaritan to talk about what empathy looks like when those, uh, we encounter are hurt in some major way.
2: I love, I love that. I love that part of the book. The other, the other thing I really want you to, to kind of talk about is you talk about, you had this student uh, named Kevin, who I think, uh, kind of encountered a similar struggle to, I think, uh, what a lot of us encounter at some point when we're really like studying the Bible, which is, you know, this, this issue with, um, uh, especially the old Testament, this violent God, you know, if, uh, you know, the old Testament. And, and so he, he mentions at one point, he kind of almost refers to God as like a mob boss, but he's like, you know, I really like this Jesus guy. And, and so it reminded me of, uh, we spoke with, uh, Dr. Sharon Putt, uh, a couple years ago, and she has this, this great, um, comment in one of her books, um, when she 's addressing that very topic, talking about we need to, we need to start uh, reading the Old Testament specifically through the lens of Jesus, and I, I think that 's kind of what you 're getting at there, but I would love for you to to, to talk about that a little bit
1: yeah that 's definitely what i 'm getting at. I think a lot of us have this notion of God, and then they try, we try to place it on Jesus. Instead of thinking that Jesus is our clearest revelation of who God is, or at least God's character, you know, I don't think Jesus is omnipresent. I think God is omnipresent. But I think Jesus gives us the clearest vision of God's loving character. And so if we have a hard time imagining Jesus being a mob boss, then it makes no sense to think God acts like a mob boss. Uh, Instead, we need to think about, um, well... I mean, I oftentimes and many people oftentimes refer to the Philippians chapter two passage of kenosis that Jesus reveals that God's love is servant like, in fact, even uh, suffering death. Um, And that's a better way to begin to think about God rather than beginning by some of the, I don't know, cultural assumptions we've been given. I mean, think about it. In our culture, if somebody wants to make a movie about God, they call it Bruce Almighty, not Bruce All-Loving. Right? Because hmm. hmm. we, we have this fundamental assumption that the thing we can't give up on is, is God's power and a particular way of thinking about God's power. Uh, but I think we ought to begin with love and then try to understand how we best should think about God's power in light of love.
3: Man, I think that's so good. I think that's just a, a really good way to to flip the script on that. You know, as as I'm sitting here, I'm trying to just think through some of the tragedies and, you know, the the real conversations that I've had with people where some kind of tragedy has thrown somebody into, you know, what we would call a crisis of faith or doubt or the, these kinds of questionings that, that really get down to the heart of who they believe God to be. And wh- whenever we're talking about who we believe God to be, if we're going to be honest, we're we're really talking about what we believe reality to be most like at its core. Mm-hmm. And, and we're also talking about, you know, identity, because whatever we believe about reality and whatever we believe about God is really a lot of what we believe about who we are and how we relate mm-hmm. to all this. So, yeah, um, I think one of the things that I'm driving at here is when tragedy strikes, the, the question of God really comes under fire. You know, what could God have done about this? But the thing, the thing about it to me that it, it always kind of comes back to is, well, what, you know, at the end of the day, obviously there's some things that are just bizarre and unexplainable and that that's, that's part of it. But, you know, when you look across the world at the sufferings and tragedies, to me, the question isn't what can God do about this? The question should be, what can we do about this?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, I would hesitate um, in saying that if we mean that somehow God is allowing these things in order to, you know, get us off our butts and do something. Um, you know, in the last chapter of this particular book, I talk about this idea that I call indispensable love synergy. And um, the truth is that very few people people today think God always controls everything all the time. Mm-hmm. Most, most people believe in some kind of free will. They may say God's in control, but you know when you start pressing them on it, you know, they're, they're up for affirming free will and maybe even chance and occurrences. Um, and then they'll say something like this. Um, God's love means that God has invited us to participate in the world. And so then that sort of brings in what you're pointing to, that, you know, we ought to do something about evil in the world. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that most people have that view, still think that God could solve the questions of evil single-handedly. God Mm -hmm. could kick, you know, come in, kick some butt, figure it all out and save all the starving people in the world, stop every sexual abuse, yada, yada, yada. And that then sort of makes our efforts kind of uh, really unnecessary. Mm -hmm. You know, if God can do it all alone, then why should we get off our butts and do anything? Because if God really cared about it, God would do it single-handedly. Part of saying God can't is to say that God simply can't stop evil single-handedly. And you and I have an essential role to play. It's not some sort of just, you know, maybe if you do something, that'll be great. If we don't do something, love simply can't win, at least not in its fullest. And that's a more radical vision than most people have heard.
3: No, that is exactly what I am trying to say. If, if we really cool. do get the heart of what you're saying, that it's not God won't, um, it's not that he's, you know, trying to teach us a lesson, uh, or anything like that. It's, it's that he, he actually can't, if you understand God as love primarily in the way that you're suggesting that is a, a huge motivation for us to be far more empowered and far more uh taking seriously our our beautiful gift of of existence and being here, and what are we going to do with this
1: and exactly it means our lives are significant, they' so much more significant
3: yes, so much yeah. more significant, not just as yep. worshipers in the churchy kind of sense, right, but as uh you know to go back to, to Genesis as tenders of the garden, as bearers of the image, as love right. in action, as, you know, the first incarnation, God pouring himself out into physical matter and physical reality and crowning it with humanity that has this potential to to work with hands and voices and eyes and feet and muscle and actually interact with this reality that all came from God's potential. And here we are with all of this ability, wondering what God's going to do. And it's like, what are you going to do?
1: <laughs> exactly. Preach it, brother. Preach it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why I love
3: this perspective because it, it yeah. puts it back into humanity's hands. You know,
1: just it, yep. it's, it's really, really, I think it's thrilling. I think it's really great. Well, I'm happy to hear that. Sometimes when I, I give this perspective, a certain percentage of the crowd has the kind of reaction you seem to be having, you know, like, yeah, we got we to do something. My life really matters. But then there's often a smaller percentage that sort of their, their shoulders kind of slump and they say, oh, you mean what I do actually matters? And it's like depressing to them. Um, I'm not sure exactly what's going on there psychologically, but I do want to recognize that some people aren't really jacked up and, you know, inspired by this vision. They see it as meaning that they have to take their lives really seriously. <laughs> that's not a very happy thing for them. Oh, man.
2: Yeah, I, I'm sure that's there. Yep. So one one of the things I would love to hear you talk about, because <clears throat> you have this great uh, part of the book where you talk about uh, community. And one of the things Adam and I have tried to communicate since starting this podcast is just the importance of community, especially due to the fact that a lot of the the people who listen to our podcast um, are really kind of just kind of wandering and looking for um, a spiritual home, whatever that looks like. And so you talk about in the book about uh, community and you have this great quote uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you to you. How about that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> All
2: right. You say unswerving solitude stunts growth. Those who persist alone perish alone. We need relational arcs that promote health and healing. We need places and people who express God's emphatic love. But what's interesting is that you also mentioned that you know there are times when you know people experience evil at the hands of the church. So maybe the church isn't the healthiest place for them to to seek community. So. For, for a lot of the listeners that, that are out there right now who are like, yeah, that's me. What would you suggest to them? What would you say?
1: You know, this is hard um, because a lot of people I know who are Christians uh, want to give an enthusiastic thumbs up for the church. And I just can't do that. You know, I, I've seen the church hurt a lot of people and it's hurt me. Sometimes church or church people just suck. And there's just no way around it. You know, it's it's like, pardon, well, I'll use the, an illustration from my own life. It's like you really think a girl in high school is really great and you start dating her. And time and time again, she breaks your heart. And after a while, you just go, I can't live a healthy life if I continue in this relationship. Right. And so you you got to get out of it, you know. There are some churches that people just got to get out of. There are some relationships with folks in communities that you just got to turn your back, shake off the dust of your feet and walk out. However, I think if you're really going to thrive, you need to have a loving community. If you try to do it solely on your own, you're missing out on some really, really important things and you can't. Live the kind of abundant life that I think God wants you to live. So the quest then becomes, how do you find this kind of community, these kind of people, this kind of church? And let me quickly say, there's no perfect community. There's no perfect church, but there are definitely some communities that are better than others. And when you begin to be around people who give and receive love in an adequate kind of way, sometimes spectacular kinds of ways, but never perfect kind of ways, then you're able to experience a depth of love and life that I think God yearns for everyone to experience. Mm. And so that's what I would encourage people who are listening to this podcast to look for that kind of community. Always remember that you're never going to find the perfect one. And always remember, you have to make a contribution to the community. You just can't sit passively there and let everybody else feed you. But also know that some communities suck and there's no shame in walking away from them.
2: Hmm. Oh. I uh, wholeheartedly agree with you on that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. Bravo. <laughs> Bravo. Having experienced that myself, yes. Um <laughs> So I think my follow up is because I think you have this great section in, in the book as well. And that, that comes shortly after that, where, where you talk about um, you're, you're giving another account. You have some great stories in there, by the way. Uh, of some, Thank you. Some real genuine experiences that I think people can really connect with. And one of them, as you talk about this woman in the book, um, who's just like trying to feel God, the presence of God. And I know myself included. I remember, um, you know, kind of experiencing evangelical Christianity for the first time in college and just getting really frustrated. Like, you know, why, why am I not speaking in tongues? Why am I not, you know, like getting, you know, visions and prayers, you know, and, and, and things like that. And so you give some really practical advice. You, you, she asked, well, how, you know, what are some ways that I can experience God? um, At least a little of God's love. And you give six different uh, ways to experience God or try to encounter uh, a little of God that I thought were really helpful, practical steps. I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Sure. We've already mentioned one of them, which is to seek out a loving community. Another one is to look for uh, some sort of a counseling or therapy kind of situation. I think sometimes that can be incredibly powerful and uh, therapists or counselors can be the means through which we feel God's love. Um, I really like... um, Nature And so I oftentimes feel close to God in the natural world. So that's another possibility, to, uh, a way to experience God. Um, art, I mentioned movies and music. For some people, that's their primary way that they experience God. And I think that's a, a great thing to, uh, to pursue. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Through the love of a child. I mentioned that as a possibility. It sometimes, you know, your child, your grandchild, your cousin or whoever that becomes the lens or the means by which you you sense God's loving presence. Um, It feels like I'm missing one.
2: Let's see. I have them written down here. Uh, mindfulness, okay. meditation, and prayer.
1: Oh, yeah, prayer. Yeah. That's, the one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe that's, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people feel God in prayer, but a lot of people don't also. So, um I, I, at least in the tradition I've been a part of, that's the go-to one for many people. If you want to sense God's loving presence in your life, then you spend time in prayer. And sometimes that has been helpful for me, but other times not. And so I don't, I don't want to uh, place uh, too much emphasis on prayer, but also I want to acknowledge it as a a real possibility to experience God's love. Mm.
3: A couple things on that real quick, Tom, because I think this is great that actually that little that little bit happened just now because it's perfect because I wanted to highlight, <laughs> <I> wanted to <laughs> highlight this anyway, you, you know, okay. you say mindfulness, meditation, and prayer. And I think that, um, lumping those together is interesting, especially with mm. what you just said about how a lot of people just can't, can't do it the way they used to do it anymore. So, yeah. um, two questions then how do mindfulness and meditation kind of fit into that category for, for you? And how have you, how have you seen that with other people? And then, um, Number two, let's talk about prayer just a little bit going forward.
1: Okay, sounds good. This morning, I did what has become a very common form of prayer for me. I got up. I'm walking my wife's dog these days, put my dog on the leash, walked out the door. And the first thing I thought to myself is, I want to symbolically breathe in God. So I sucked in my breath. And then I symbolically breathe out love. And I start I begin to do that as I walk down the sidewalk, symbolically breathing in God, symbolically breathing out love as and that beginning to pace my my breath focuses my attention and my attentiveness on God and the way I might live out my life and sometimes my mind starts moving into instead of expressing lo- love in general I think of specific forms of love hmm. sometimes I think about people sometimes I just kind of set my intentions on the day this morning actually when I was walking my mind went to an essay that I want to write on love and and ecology so that was kind of where my mind went. And Mm. I just naturally let it go there. Um, It becomes oftentimes very meaningful to me. Mm. And sometimes I try to redirect my mind places. Other times I just sort of let it go. That's far different than when I was in high school and I had uh, the model of prayer given to me by, I think, a pastor or somebody that I needed to start off with, uh, Praise, then go to thanksgiving, and then go to petition. Um, yep. I'm not saying that way is wrong. I'm just saying that um, uh, that doesn't f- work for me like it once did. So I suppose I would say to your listeners that it's okay to experiment with prayer, meditation, mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's okay to think outside the box when you do, you'll start to see passages of scripture that you, you missed previously and think, oh man, that actually fits, you know, this passage of scripture actually in, fits this notion of mindfulness that, uh, you know, I'd never thought of before. So mm. there, there are a lot of ways, I think, to do this.
3: That's beautiful. I love, you know, I've, we've heard some rabbis teach that uh, the name of God to the Hebrews, Yahweh, is a, is a breathing exercise in and of itself. Yeah, just, uh-huh. just that word. So that that's what came to mind when you were just doing that for me. But, you know, for some people that are going to ha- take some time adjusting to this idea that God can't, uh, I think it's going to really interrupt and maybe in a good way, their prayer life. Yeah. So if God can't, this is my last question for you. What do we okay. do with
1: what do we do with prayer? Yeah. So I'm assuming you mean what we oftentimes call petitionary prayer. Correct. Which is is
3: probably 95% of all prayers being thrown out there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. 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 So um, let me begin my answer on petitionary prayer and God can't by talking about the normal or not normal, the traditional views people have of God and how those make very little sense of petitionary prayer. So, one very common view is that God knows the future with absolute certainty. Mm. God sits outside of time. God knows exactly who's going to be the next president of the United States and every president thereafter. Everything in the future is totally known by God. Now, if you believe that, then... It's hard to imagine how your prayers will make any difference in altering the future God already knows is settled, fixed, and complete. Most of us pray petitionary prayers thinking that what we say might actually alter what God does or how the world is in the future. But if you have a God who knows the future, has predestined, foreordained, or foreknown it all, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to pray a petitionary prayer. Right. Secondly, most people think that even though they have free will, God could just unilaterally, single-handedly bring about whatever result in the world God wants to do. So, you know, maybe your aunt's got cancer. Most people think God could just single-handedly cure of cancer. Boom. Doesn't take any input on my part, on her part, the doctor's part. God could just do it single handedly. Well, it's kind of hard to be motivated to pray for your aunt's cancer. If you think God can do it without your prayers. I mean, in fact, I mean, it's kind of a, a weird and gross view of God. Is God sort of on the sidelines, twiddling his f- thumbs thinking, you know, if John doesn't pray 87 prayers, <laughs> I'm not going to step in and help out his aunt with her cancer. Right. I could do it all alone if I wanted to, but he's got to earn it. You know, what kind of view of God is that? If God is loving and God loves everyone all the time, and God can single-handedly do anything, then why should we even have to ask God? God's going to do the loving best no matter what we do. So those two things, those two ideas about God, God's relation to time and the future and what God knows, and God's power that God can do anything, if you believe either one of those, and most people believe both, petitionary prayer makes no sense. There's no real reason to do that. It ends up presenting God as almost kind of a fickle God who you have to please in order for this God to help out in some way. Now, in my view, God can't heal that cancer single-handedly, but God works with creation, not only the cells and ant whatever her name's body was, uh, but also. My activity actually makes a difference to God and the world. What I do can actually open up new possibilities for God to act that may not have been available had I not done something, had Mm. I not prayed. Mm. And so in my view, prayer makes a difference not only to God, but sometimes some things might not get done unless you and I act to pray or to pray with our feet, pray with our mind, etc., So, man, in this perspective, I think it makes more sense, even though people, I think, admittedly at the beginning, start to wonder why they should pray. I mean, do people really think that if you prayed, you somehow are going to enable God to control others as if God couldn't otherwise? I don't believe that. Um, In fact, most people I know, they won't pray a prayer like this. They won't pray, God, force Uncle Joe to become a Christian because they think Uncle Joe has free will and, you know, God either won't or can't do that. I'm taking that that idea that God can't force Uncle Joe to become a Christian, and I'm applying it to all of reality. But I'm saying my activity can make a difference not only to God, but to reality beyond myself. And therefore, my prayers can make a real difference in the world. And with Uncle Joe. And with Uncle Joe. They don't force (laughs) Uncle Joe, but they can definitely persuade Uncle Joe. You
3: can love Uncle
1: Joe. (laughs) Exactly. I love it.
2: So I think, I mean, I think that's the perfect, perfect place to, uh, to wrap up our time. And, And that's really the kind of where you conclude at the end of your book is God needs our cooperation, which is something that you, you bring up throughout, you know, that's the thread throughout the book is that God can't do it single handedly. So what, what are things that, that we should and could be doing, uh, to, to help God, uh, you know, lessen if nothing else, the evil, uh, that exists in the world.
1: Wow, well, that would be a whole interview to go into details. But I, mean, <laughs> well, I think what I think I, we're solving
2: it, it today, right? <laughs> yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's just so many different ways. I, actually, I think it's part of the beauty of this. Um, there's no one right way uh, how we might love in response to God. I think God sees us exactly where we are in our lives, our past, our relationships, our personal interactions our occupations, our goals, our desires, our histories, our genes, our bodies, etc. And in every single moment, God invites us to do something loving, depending on the circumstances. Sometimes those expressions of love might seem pretty profound, but most of the time they're just pretty mundane. You know, they're doing things like um, hugging your kids or, you know, not littering or, you know, uh, right now having a conversation with you two guys, I think I'm being, I'm expressing love in this particular moment and you guys are expressing love too. We feel it, it, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is probably not going to, you know, change the world. Oh no, no, it is. (laughs) (laughs) It'll change some part of it though, I guess. It's changing you and I, uh, the three of us right now. And as people listen in the future, it'll have some change in them. Yes. So, um, yeah, I think there's all kinds of things we can do moment by moment to respond to God's unique calls to love in whatever situation we're in. Mm.
2: I love it. That's so good. Cool. I love it. Thank you, Tom. Love this book. Sure. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Before Before we let you go, though, um, we want people to go out and get this book. There's so much more content. In it's a there. great book. Um, it, a really fun read. You've got great uh, questions to ponder at the end of each chapter, which I think is always helpful. Um, where can people go out and find this book and where can they stay up on top of what you're up to?
1: Sure. Uh, probably Amazon's the best place to find this. Uh, you can get a hardback paperback, um, ebook actually. And since this is a podcast and people will be listening, those of you who are like to listen to books, uh, there's also an audiobook version of this, I will say though, uh, there's one caveat. Uh, you have to listen to me reading the book, so that uh, may not be so delightful. No, you've but... got a great <laughs> voice, Tom. Very, very calming, very calming voice. <laughs> um, also, if you're you know would like to uh, you know read some other things or be a part of uh, join my newsletter, you can go to my website and get all kinds of other info. And my website address is my full name, Thomas. J J A Y Ord, O O R D dot com. Thomas J com. Very cool. So I invite you to check that out and you know, sign up for the newsletter and you can find out what I'm doing, where I'm speaking, what I'm writing, all that sort of thing.
3: Well, this has just been a lot of fun. I think maybe down the road we may this is just an intuition I have. Down the road, we may need to get you and Greg Boyd on to talk about open theism. I'm picking up on a little bit of Potentialities there that could be maybe throw Catherine Keller in there, get some process theology going in there too.
1: <laughs> that would be a fun conversation. That would be Both super fun. Are, people are my friends, so I'd love to do that. I, oh, that's kinda, awesome.
4: I
2: kind of had a feeling. I kind of <laughs> had a feeling. That's yeah, great. That's, great stuff. Well, thank you so I, much. Uh, it, it was an absolute pleasure having you on, and thanks for helping us kick off uh, 2019 in a big way. So, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me for the conversation.
2: Any time. <laughs> awesome. Well we'll catch you next time.
4: Well,
3: welcome back, Adam. Oh man. That was a that was a really fun conversation. And I just it, it, especially when you start talking about these things that you had to have so ironed out when you were like in high school, if you were going to church, things like who is God and what can God do? I mean, those were like the basics Yeah. to be in like my late (laughs) thirties and completely like flipping all this stuff on its head and just trying to see it from a different angle is, is exciting, exhausting. Yes. And, um, a whole bunch of other things, but, uh, you know, it's a good thing. It really is a good thing that we get to rethink and reconstruct yeah. a lot of these ideas that uh, really held us steadfast um, in, in one place for so long. And this whole idea of God can't, man, uh, I'm still
2: digging into it. I'm still not sure quite what to do with it, but I really like it. Yeah, I think it's the first argument that I've heard that, that makes a lot of logical sense to my the logical part of my brain. Yes. Um, and... and and really attempts to even address the idea of like you know what why why did these shootings happen like you know if there's a loving god up there why didn't he you know like you know, clog the gun up or whatever. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> right, right, right. Like stop the gun. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like clog, uh, clog it. Yeah. Clog it. Yeah, Like, with, Can a hair, you clog like with a hairball. Can you clog a gun? <laughs> um, you know, like, like stop it from being able to fire or whatever. And, and in that moment, in, instead of allowing this tragedy to happen and these parents to grow up without their children. And right, their right, thing. right. Exactly. So as opposed to just saying, well, you know, cause he, he talks a lot about like these, um these really, what I think are unhelpful, uh sayings that we've all heard before and, and we've probably even said at one point in our lives like God, I hope not. You know, we just don't understand God's ways, or um Oh God's ways are not our ways. Right, right. Or there's a higher purpose in all of this, or just
3: because you can't understand it doesn't mean there's not a reason.
2: Right. You know, or or, you know, or you even even I think what's worse than that is saying things like, you know, it's just um it's God's way of, of teaching you and and helping you grow into a better person. And He disciplines those he loves, John. Right. Right, it disciplines like, those what? he loves. It's like w- really has got a jerk.
3: Yeah, that's when I want to just take a large fresh trout and slap somebody across the face like Monty Python style. Exactly. Just thank fish you. Fish slap them. Yeah, fish slap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's not cool. And I think, again, I think one of the, one of the reasons that I I'm not going to say I was having trouble, but like where where I'm at mentally with this whole question is not that I don't care. But that it's it's now my conviction that when people are wondering what it means or they're trying to attribute meaning to what they see as absurdity, there isn't going to be a lot of they're not actually looking for a reason at that point. Mm -hmm. I think the language that they're using is this is indescribable, right? This is making my whole life feel like it doesn't make sense. And that's exactly what tragedy is going to do, whether you have a great reason for it or not. That's kind of where I'm at with a lot of this. Like so much of what we go through puts us in a position where we're reeling, we're spinning, we're dizzy, we're nauseous. Can't, you don't even know which way is up. And somebody is suggesting, but if you had a reason or if you could understand this, this would be less painful. And I, I don't subscribe to that. Right. I really don't. I I think that at that point, when people are going through things like that, it's not till much later that they're able to then kind of come back and talk about things like meaning or reasons or how this relates to God. But like in the throes of it, I just, I don't want anybody that listens to this episode. If you've got a friend that's going through a tragedy, this isn't like the time to, you know, be giving them, well, no, it's actually because God You know, blah, blah, blah. I actually think that his position on this is the best I've ever heard. Yeah. But when people are going through tragedy, the last thing you want to say is like, well, this teaches us a lot about who God actually is. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, no, people just need to grieve. Yeah. They need to grieve healthy, like in a healthy way and with love and support. And it's okay that it makes nodal sense. It's a, it's ambiguous
2: loss. Yeah. 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 I, l- I love what he says too. He, he gives an example. There's a story in the book where he talks about, um, I think it was, uh, um, his wife was going through something and his instinct. And I completely identify with this cause I, I have gotten yelled at enough for this, uh, myself, but when something terrible goes wrong, I go into fix it mode. Fix it. I'm just like, here are all the ways that we're going to fix this problem. When people who are going through trauma or tragedy really don't like want that necessarily they they just want you to empathize, and by empathize, you know he talks about like entering the suffering with them and mm. and sometimes that 's just hugging them and saying, "Yeah, that sucks i 'm mm. sorry, yep, but I 'm here with you yep um the other thing i, I love too is this the, the the whole premise of the book is that that God works in conjunction with us, yeah, and it, if anybody's been listening to the podcast lately, i 've said this probably way too many times, but i 've been reading a ton of Jewish, uh, literature and, and, and reading a ton of Jewish scholars. And one of the things, um, that, that keeps coming up in what I've been reading is this idea that, that God or that human beings, um, enter into creation with God mm-hmm. and that creation continues, uh, through the Holy Spirit, through us, his God's creation, which is this ultimate act of love. And I, I think that's what he's kind of getting at in the book is that, you know, God acts through us and he gives a lot of examples like. Um, I think it was kind of funny. He talks about how like, you know, God gives us doctors, you know? Yeah. And, you know, healers, you know? Yeah. And uh, and acts through few human beings, you know? And it, it, it makes me think of that. Um, what's the joke with the guy in the rowboat in the middle of the ocean? who's like, I'm waiting for God to save me. And the helicopter's like, but we're here. It's like, yeah, I'm waiting for like, God. No, no, no. The ship liner comes by. It's like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm waiting for God to save me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No,
3: totally, dude. Totally. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's so good. That's so spot on.
4: Yeah.
2: Yeah. No. Yeah. We're, we're, we're participate. We're, we're partners. And what What a gift that is, though, once you once you come to that realization, you're like, oh, God wants to pr- us to participate with him, it, she, whatever. Yeah.
3: You know, I always used to think that one of the most fundamental problems that created a lot of undue strife and anxiety in how we relate to the absurdity of this reality and ideas like God and meaning and, and things like that is that I think a lot of people, especially if they're trying to reconcile like a Christian worldview um, we are taught that God created long time ago and this is what we got. And there's something you know significant about this. And then after death, we're not really sure of a blah, blah, blah. Well, wait a second. I think the fundamental flaw with that is yeah, God created. And if what you mean by that, God began it way, way back when like it, mm. it began somewhere sometime. Uh, I don't think that's probably too tough to argue. Even if you just want to go straight evolution, right? Sure. Yeah. But what if it's, what if this is like, what if we are currently in the process of creation, right? Like what if this is all a becoming now we're going like again, process theology and things <laughs> like that. But, but I actually think that that's spot on because yeah. if, you know, any kind of pain that we all have to endure collectively as a species, cause you know, our pain is everybody's pain and you know, Like Roar would say there's one great suffering and it is God's like the suffering of God. We share in the the one great suffering, all of us. Right. It's because like creating something requires struggle and pain and absurdity and all these types of things. But if it's like, if we know that it's actually like a part like of creation, like it's still going, I don't know. That just, that does something different to me,
2: to me. I mean, I've got a giant print of a picture from the Hubble Space Telescope yeah. in my bedroom, and I'm like, supernovas, man. Dude. That's come on, look at the universe, look at the universe and tell me creation isn't happening everywhere. All the time you do it in infinity, you know, everybody needs to watch the Netflix documentary, by the way, a str-
3: uh, uh, our strange rock or this strange rock or it's I just, yeah, dude, it's incredible. Good. Okay. I just got a 4k TV. Maybe I'll sit down and watch that. It now. is incredible. Anyway, I could talk all day. Obviously <laughs> we've been pent up for a while, but, uh, it was good getting this, uh, getting this going yeah. again and having this great episode. I think it's a lot of good food for thought. I think it's going to comfort a lot of, People,
2: especially people that have recently gone through tragedy, which we've both had our fair share of, and yeah, yeah. And, and I just want to say, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure having you back next to me, man. Hearing your silky baritone voice, I love. I love Adam was gone the entire month of December. This like, is
3: the first time that I have seen my dear brother, my friend, since my, Christmas. My podcast CEO, yeah. In 2019. I know. (laughs) That's so sad. And it's so good to see you, man. It's so good to see you, too. And this is such a pleasure. And it's good to be
2: with all of you Deconstructionist listeners. Thank you for not kicking us out of your lives. Yeah, thank you for being patient. I know some of you on social media are starting to ask, "Um, hey, where are you guys? Getting a little restless out there. And I totally get it. We did not intend on taking this long of a period of time off. but We're uh, we're testing out the whole absence makes the heart grow fonder. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And uh, no, we appreciate it. Um, you guys, hanging tight. Um, you know, Adam and I have both been going through our fair share of uh, life, just kicking us in the face. Um, to end twenty eighteen to beginning twenty nineteen, um, it's not over. It's, it's going to be a bumpy year. <laughs> it is, but. Um, but we appreciate your prayers I know some of you reached out and, and, and offered your your prayers and, 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 uh, um, your kind thoughts. And so thank you guys so much. Um, maybe we'll address some of that, what we've been going through in the future. We'll see. Um, but, um, but thank you. And, uh, thank you for hanging tight and please support the artists whose music we use this week. Um, and, uh, check the show notes for all that information. Go buy their music. Uh, follow us on Spotify, um, our, our, playlist on there and, uh, please subscribe. Uh, and if you want to help us out a five-star review on Apple, um, helps us uh, greatly and, uh, just share, share with your friends. So if you think this might be useful to somebody, please, 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 um, share the podcast with them and, and let them know. So thank
3: you everybody. Thank you for sticking with us, for journeying with us, evolving with us, hanging with us. Uh, for now we are your hosts. I am Adam Narlok. And I am John Williamson. Keep deconstructing, everybody. Welcome to 2019.
4: What if we walked into the airport and bought a ticket at the counter and just flew? Spin the globe and close your eyes. I'll go anywhere it lands. be somewhere, if it's you and me, I'll be there. The songs we know. Oh well, we blew the speakers, gas station coffee.